I'm Jack Zemlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2017 Strip Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Lessons Learned Developing a Successful Strip Till System, is being brought to you by the National Strip Tillage Conference. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if there's another app you prefer for listening to podcasts, let us know. We'll make every effort to get it added here as well. And subscribing will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released and an opportunity to go back and check out earlier episodes in this series. Again, today's program is being brought to you with support from the National Strip Tillage Conference. The fourth annual event will be held August 3rd and 4th in Omaha, Nebraska, and include seven general session speakers, 12 classroom sessions, and 26 roundtable discussions. Also featured is a special pre-conference workshop on Wednesday, August 2nd with cover crop expert Steve Groff. You can find more information and download the just-released speaker program as well as register for this can't-miss strip-till focused educational experience at www.striptillconference.com. Well, any farmer will tell you that strip-till is as much a science as it is an art. Adopting the practice requires a mix of patience, persistence, and passion. But there are shared challenges and lessons learned that collectively strip-tillers can evolve with, adapt to, or overcome. During the 25th annual National No-Tillage Conference in St. Louis, we assembled a diverse group of strip-tillers for a structured yet, at times, spontaneous lunch conversation. With a focus on talking about the transitional considerations for adopting strip-till, the discussion also included experience-based advice on nutrient management strategies, equipment preferences, and communicating the value of conservation tillage to the general public. At the table with us were Don Branton from Leroy, New York, David Bermall from Baldwin, Iowa, Ricky Kratz from Slinger, Wisconsin, Mike Shooter from Frankton, Indiana, and Aaron Wickstrom from Hillmar, California. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, we share selected ex- excerpts from our roundtable Strip-Till conversation, touching on transitioning into the practice, early challenges, and initial benefits. We just yet probably have everybody uh, introduce themselves, uh, maybe share a little bit about their operation, um, how they got into strip-tilling, uh, how long they've been strip-tilling, you know, uh, and then we can kind of transition in, into a few more specific things. So Aaron Wickstrom, Hillmark, California, uh, been dairy farming, crop farming in Hillmark for 76 years from fourth generation uh, farming there with by route of Chicago, South America, and stuff in between <laughs> before I came back. Um, kind of my initial um, push into conservation tillage, strip tilling, was just looking at that side of our business. Being a dairy farmer takes so much of our time. We just kind of plateaued on yields and just the amount of expense we were spending, you know, deep ripping, double mixing, land finishing 
you know, with our three crop, our three crop rotation throughout the year is just really expensive. So looking at the economics, I've heard of uh, a environmental group in our area, Sustainable Conservation, uh, was doing uh, some strict till trials on a 48 field a couple miles away from us. So went out, took a look at it, and I was like, this is a no-brainer. So the next did a couple weeks of researching equipment, ordered equipment, and converted all 1,000 acres over the following year. So it's been good. Yeah. We had an association somewhat with Ray Ross in Alton, Michigan, so we kind of followed him. In 96, we bought his own till planters and got to know Ray at various meetings. We visited his farm. He was doing some pretty wondrous things. And with our, in 96, we bought his own till planter. 2004, we bought an under first uh, zone builder, 12 row zone builder. Uh, our diversification of crops led us to thinking we needed, at that time, up to 2004, we needed to do something to alleviate some of the soil constraints that we we're encountering. Uh, just to give you a real quick overview of our planting season, when I, the day I left to the strip till conference, Back in August, I talked to a friend of mine who farms 30 miles south of me, and he said, we finally parked our planter. He said, we've been three months planting our crops. You know, their corn, their beans, uh, dry beans, all their various crops that they grow. But he said, for three months. And I said, well, that's, you know, we parked ours a little sooner, but uh, we'll typically start planting the latter part of April and depending on if we're planting any string beans or dry beans or something like that sweet corn and that we could be planting up till the middle of July the ground gets can get pretty hard by that time of the year someone can just replant into so the zone till planter I had that loaded down with fertilizer hopper extensions on it and I had weight brackets and uh, yeah the people from Kinsey came out and looked at my planter a couple times and said they don't know how the hell it holds together <laughs> <laughs> but I was cautious with it knowing that. So 2004, we bought the 12-row zone builder from up through And uh, when we set it up, we set it up to put nutrients on with it. We, we had a 750-gallon tank that towed behind it, and we put a pump on it so we could put our basically our nitrogen down for our corn when, when we went through with a strip-till machine ahead of it. Uh, prior to that, we were putting all the nutrients on through the planter. 500 gallon tank on the front of the tractor and a pair of, pair of 150 gallon saddle tanks to carry my starter fertilizer and I'd be filling up with between dry fertilizer or liquid I'd be filling up every 12 and a half 13 acres and uh, I thought well if I could take some of that some of that load off the planting tractor put it on on the zone builder and of course first thing Cornell University people from Cornell University say well aren't you afraid you're gonna lose it I said I don't believe so and they said, well, how about we do a three-year replicated trial in your operation? And it just worked out that the first year, the first trial, we had sweet corn next to the shop. And that summer, we had uh, Ray Ross and Francis Childs. We had a field day at our farm, and those two attended it. And we went out and dug a root pit across across the three replications and Ray Ray really loved getting down the root pits and looking at things and uh, you know obviously where we ran the zone builder and put deep place nitrogen versus the other trials there was a much bigger root ball down there and it certainly 
showed some potential. Actually, the results of that three-year replication are on the back side of one of your sheets. It probably says sweet corn on it. It was pl placement of the nitrogen and deep slot versus just the zone tip. And it was interesting because it was on three, three different farms, three different fields, three different soil types, three different varieties of corn. But the common denominator was all three years, the slot with a deep place nitrogen trumped everybody else. You know, we've got, if you look, we've got financial return on there for the final year, but uh, of course, everybody's saying, well, what or why? And I'm saying, well, typically I tell people, if you're putting fertilizer on top of the ground and your roots are coming up to get the fertilizer on top of the ground, you've got a pretty serious problem. <laughs> and Cornell did, did take, take this concept to one of the research farms and, and worked with it a little bit. And what I heard back from them was, you know, with the deep place nitrogen, you don't have the microbial and the biological activity down. We're putting it down eight inches in the soil. So you don't have the activity that deep in the soil. Yes, there's some activity, but the most active part of your soil is the top two or three inches. And we don't stabilize deep place nitrogen. You don't need to put a stabilizer. We do run sulfur with all of our nitrogen. Some of the other pages on there show our corn, corn yields over time and our soybean yields over time and actually some of the sweet corn. And I do have it. You'll notice I do a lot of things handwritten. As I said in one of the sessions earlier, I don't have a smart ass phone. I got a dumb ass phone. <laughs> Someday I suppose I'll get one, but you know, I did do have a line on there in 2004 when we did switch to with the strip till machine. And the crop yields on there might not be very, very amazing to a lot of people, but I told Jack they were, you know, fairly common in our area what people were getting. And uh, the year that we went with the strip till machine, deep place nitrogen, we, we raised our yield levels to a pretty significant increase. Uh, a lot of people watching what we're doing and it was basically at first, what the hell is he doing? What the hell is he doing now? And then I started getting phone calls. What are you gonna do next? And pretty much everybody in our area now has switched over to some reduced till and there's a lot of strip till. I think most all of our neighbors, even the biggest naysayer, just up the road around the corner from me that was always watching and he's, he's kind of sneaky, but uh, he confided in me a couple of years ago. He, he runs a strip till machine now and got a no-till planter, he plants his soybeans. He said he was always conventional moldboard plow, fit the fields. He said, if I had to go back to moldboard plowing and that, he said, I'd be done and quit. I had other neighbors that, that reluctantly switched over to strip tillage because their bottom line, you know, as was said earlier this morning, we either, you know, either had to change or I wouldn't be up here talking to you. And that was, you know, the bottom line for some of them that just the economic uh, picture that they were looking at that they could not, you know, sustain farming the way they were going with, with all the tillage and that. You know, one of the other, and, and I'm talking about, you know, five to 7,000 acre farm operations that were looking at this. And, uh, and one, one of the operations, works a lot of land around us, but uh, the first year they switched over with uh, strip tilling, zone building, if you want to say it's a zone builder, but they're running a strip tiller. They were using anhydrous ammonia, and I just, I about 
crap my pants when I see the neighbors doing that. And they were they were planning within a day behind it. And, and what, what I know about anhydrous ammonia, what I've been told, you should let it stabilize for at least three days before you go in there and plant something because it can sneak out of the ground. But uh, knock on wood, they didn't have any issues with it. And that first year they did it, I talked to, the, talked to them in the fall and they said, we had the best corn crop we ever had. And uh, that's pretty much a general consensus of what people are seeing. We, we've used it on vegetable crops, you know, sweet corn, snap beans, and, you know, we've used it places that, you know, it's like, what the hell are you doing? And the processors, you know, we are, all of our vegetables, peas, sweet corn, lima beans, are uh, processing vegetables, so a local processor takes them and processes them, and they did not, they did not embrace any type of reduced till, minimum till, <coughs> strip till, no till. <clears throat> they told me early on, <clears throat> don't tell us and we won't ask. All we care about is a quality product at the plant. After several years of doing what we're doing, they had to do an audit for Cisco Food Service and they sent the auditor out to three farms. We were one of them. And the other two were people that were doing no-till and reduced till. Sent them out to see how they were doing, what they were doing, to try to get as good of marks as they could to take to the public. They tried tried IPM, Wegmans Food Products, tried IPM, tried to have an IPM food product in the store, but that since has gone away because you can't have conventional food products, IPM products, and organic products because you confuse the consumer. and. I got involved with the uh, Northeast IPM Council on the advisory advisory board. I've been on that for two years now, and I said, you know, probably the biggest disconnect is with the general public is IPM, integrated pest, and that just grabs their attention. They don't want to know anything about it, you know. Again, it's that don't ask, don't tell situation. But, uh, you know, if they could come up with a new, some unique name for that or something that, uh, so for us, you know, for us getting into it, it was ground conditions that drove us that way. And then, you know, crop response and, and what we saw return side, you know, the economic side, we reduced our, our production costs so much going that way. Cornell did case studies on, came out and did case studies on our farm, plus several others. And, uh, you know, fuel, right off the top of the bat, fuel consumption was cut roughly 50%. Uh, there was a lot, a lot of, benefits that they saw. I don't remember all of them now. I, I did uh, several years ago, got invited up to Ontario, Canada to the driving growers meeting up there. And, you know, of course I sent them a real brief profile of what I had and the night, night, night before the meeting when I got up there meeting with the, the powers to be, he says, well, I Googled their name to see what I could find. He said, did you know about this? He pulls out the, the case study that they did. I said, no, I remember doing it, but I forgot about it. And <laughs> it's like, you know, it made me realize that there's a lot of stuff out there, you know, when they, they write about you and put it on the internet or stuff like that, that there's a lot, a lot of information out there that you might not realize is out there and somebody else can find it. But I, I so when I went home, I Googled my name too, just to see what I could find. <laughs> But I, you know, what we've done and where it's taken us, I can't say enough good about it. Nutrient management is certainly a huge component of it. You know, we've got a liquid system. 
we've looked at putting one of your Montagues or something, all you know, looked at that. But nitrogen was our biggest nutrient that we put on. You know, it'd be nice if we could ban phosphorus, you know, pelletized gypsum, things like that. I mean, we're always looking, and I'm certainly not going to rule out that that possibility of someday. Now I got to convince my son of it. Unfortunately, he's embraced farming as much or more than I have, and he's uh, very got very good focus on cover crops and reduced till and. And he mentions every once in a while he wishes he could go run a moldboard plow because he never had the opportunity to run a moldboard plow for anybody. <laughs> Don brought up the ask, don't tell, but that consumer public out there, we're not going to ask, but we're going to tell you. Yeah. No, we, we, we need to do more of that. That's some of what we're going to get against. We'll get back to the conversation shortly, but I want to again recognize the National Strip Tillage Conference for supporting this podcast. The fourth annual event will be held August 3rd and 4th in Omaha, Nebraska, and again include seven general session speakers, 12 classroom sessions, and 26 roundtable discussions. Also featured is a special pre-conference workshop on Wednesday, August 2nd with cover crop expert Steve Groff. You can find more information and download the just-released speaker program, as well as register for this can't-miss, strip-till-focused educational experience at www.striptillconference.com. While reflecting on the discussion thus far, it was interesting to hear the different pathways that each farmer took into strip-till, whether it was looking for consistency with corn yields or more efficient use of fertilizer, It was clear that everyone at the table had done their homework prior to making the transition. But at the same time, each is continuously willing to experiment with their systems. This includes machinery modifications and field testing setups to see if they work, and if not, what additional adjustments can be made to produce a successful result. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from the other roundtable participants on their motivations for transitioning to strip-till. David, maybe what about your operation? Oh, it won't be that much. (laughs) I'm from East Central Iowa, farm up, most all highly roadable land. no-tilling quite a few years, and I went to strip tilling just to get work up the corn on corn ground was needed just a little more work. And uh, got a progressive bar, tank, dry fertilizer, and yeah, I've probably been doing that for 10 years. So got beef cows on my ground, so I like to, at least if I run that over, I got a little tillage where at least I want to plant, so that seems to work. Okay. I guess that's about it. Sure. Ricky? Um, well, we also follow kind of Ray Ralston with the Ralston system. And in 99, I started looking to try to find, I didn't like how unreliable my fire was, I guess you could say. And so we started looking, and so we're kind of looking for the same concept of that zone tillage. Um, I didn't. We didn't want a uh, strip till machine with a shank because we're running Class D slopes, and shanks. It seems like they 
anytime you put a shank down, that's where the water <coughs> runs and all your soil ends up in the neighbor's field. And so we ended up purchasing a soil warrior. So we're, we like the idea that the big cog and then, the, and then the dual in the spring. We went away from the big cog and now we're just using the dual um, wavy coulters in the fall and spring. So we're doing a two pass. The reason is I don't want to put my nitrogen out in the fall. I want to put it out in. We're running CCs and the anywhere from seven to fifteen. So we have a big leaching problem with nitrogen in our area. So I don't know. It's we were real happy. We were real happy with the yields we were getting <coughs> using the Ralston system. It was just. It seemed like you lost your lows in the yields, but you lost your peaks too. And where when we started strip tilling, we started gaining them 15, 20 bushel peaks that we weren't seeing with the Ralston system. And it gave it so that I can have a 12 row planter do, we're doing about 120 acres a day and our strip till machine you can do it probably 150 acres a day and I don't I only have to fill up once a day and he's gonna fill up you know a lot more <laughs> so it's a good job for my brother I guess <laughs> <laughs> but um let's see what up and the other I guess big struggle we have is our average field size is five acres so the big challenge for us was figuring out how we're going to name these lines because we're doing outside rows, inside rows. And there's not a square shaped field. If it's square, it ends up being houses around by us. Mike? We started out no tilling in, in 83, pick year, and back up just a little bit when I was at Purdue and started 69, 73. Kept seeing some work that Stan Barber had done there at Purdue in the 60s of, of strip applying fertilizers and how much more efficient that was. And that's been how many years ago now? But that, that always stayed with me even after I got out of school. And uh, started, started no till on the corn in the bean stubble actually first before we did beans in the corn stubble. Because the drill we had at the time, we didn't want to trade right away. It wasn't that old, and it wouldn't no-till beans. But we started out with with a Rawson system. I think everybody kind of did at that time, and uh, had a 12-row planter with a toolbar we put on the front of it, and, and three coulders, and, and then back uh, run that way for, for quite a few years. Um, got to using a Get what we call the roof cleaner. It looked like a miniature wheel rake. Just one wheel set on an angle, and we, we built some mounts to put that in front of the Rawson system. Really kind of helped clear that residue off and, and got things. I mean, that's just one of the progressions we went through. And I think anybody that's crypto has gone through 
they haven't gone through a dozen perspirations, they haven't gotten to where they need to be yet. But went from there um, and built a 24 row no till planter in, in 93 uh, with, with just two rows of culvers and that, and that row cleaner. I talked to Ray quite a little bit. I don't have room to build, put three culvers on here weight wise and so forth. He said, said two culvers going into bean stubble auto work farm. And so that's what we did with, with that row cleaner out in front of it. Uh, Tom Beckman's told me that, that as far as he knows, that's the first 24 row 24 row no-till planter in the state of Indiana. Uh, we turned that that was a freezing bar we picked up out in Nebraska and, and uh, added some frame to it and built a planter up that way. Uh, just with the no-till, we just felt like the corn wasn't taking off right to begin with. And got to, got to working on ideas, had a neighbor that tried just a little bit of strip-till and, and run around in the field force once with a I think he had a 12 rooster to a bar at the time. Uh, and so we're sitting there with a 24 row planter and, and uh, trying to figure out how we're going to strip to. Oh, well, once, once GPS got there, that was that was the key for us to be able to build a 24 row strip to a bar. And, uh, we started out with a, with a blue jet ammonia bar with. And we picked up a two hopper uh, green card. Well, it was, it was a two hopper air shooter for, I can't think of the name of it now, but anyway, and built, built the system off of that to begin with. Um, guys kind of got tired of changing a 24 shank strip to a bar back to a 23 shank ammonia bar on the same bar every year and then having to change it back. You end up having to move every shank on that bar to do that. So we finally went, went to John Deere 24 row planter and, and it's, it's was set up with Martin row cleaners and spike closures at the time and took that planter bar frame then and, and built build a 24 row strip to a bar out of it with with the blue jet shanks. Just basically got another set of blue jet shanks so we didn't have to switch them back and forth all the time. Like the, the closures on that blue jet shank, it done a really nice job of building the burn for us. Actually still use those closures on our anhydrous bar because with those on there, he can run, Patrick can run the bar, and he can run seven mile an hour with it. And if he can see corn, he can run seven mile an hour with it and not cover it up because there's closure catching all that dirt. And we were working back and forth. Um, we felt like we wanted a two-hopper car because we've always, always done a lot of, of variable rate fertilization 
high ground always needs more phosphate, low ground always needs more potash. And, and, and we used to do that manually with a, with a Rawson hydraulic drive on dry fertilizer box. When you're sitting there back and forth as you're driving. So that was before we had mapping software and everything else. So we've always felt like we, and our salt test is, is done on, on salt types. And so we just wanted two hopper cart at least uh, so we could evaporate potash and phosphate separately. Felt like that was the most efficient way we could handle it. We got to adding micronutrients to uh, manganese, zinc, and, and sulfur. And it didn't take too long to figure out to work either over applying that micronutrient or under applying it because we're variable it with the potash or the phosphate. And so we got to the point we were ready to make the next next step and and uh, we went to a sulfur air cart with three compartments on it. Two hundred and sixty cubic foot compartments and sixty-five. And that let us put the micronutrients in a smaller compartment only putting 40 pounds of those on potash and phosphate in separate compartments. And then we built, put together a script to a bar that's a, it's a stinger bar which is made by Monston Planters up in Ithaca, Michigan, which makes, which is mice and elder welding builds the bars for Monston Planters. But they also built, they'll build a bar for and it's it was a little bit based off of that older freezer bar we had back in So, but it's a whole lot heavier bar, better bar. Uh, we put the, the Orthman one tripper row units on it. Uh, the softer air tank. We've got eight lines coming off of it, going to, to eight towers on the bar to split the fertilizer off. System is, is really working great. We finally put enough horsepower on the front of it to handle it right. And, uh, and I'm running several on that, that thing now and covering. There's times I can get 300 acres a day. The fellow that that ran that round of crypto for me early on, he he was killed in a car wreck. But we now do the scriptoing for his son. On his off his operation, and then another good friend that's about 20 miles away in Damascus, and we went over and done about about 700 acres of strip till for them. There's, I mean, there's guys starting to look at it a little more. Right in our area, you, you've still got the mantra of the more big steel I've got in my barn lot, the better farmer I am. Until we overcome that. And that may take a generation or two to do that. Why? They're not going to want to do the management it takes to to have a a gravel rate map that's going to gravel rate three different products and it's going into into a long-term tractor to do it. So kind of where we're at. Um, Anthony and I had discussions at Strip Hill, and out here again we're actually in transition on some acres we're heading organic on and, and, and our 
goal is to do it with, with no till, strip till, and cover crops. Cover crops with weed control. <coughs> One thing we're kind of looking at, we won't be doing organic corn to 18, so this fall we'll want to be strip tilling for that. Um, trying to figure out what we make strip till. We're talking about some pellets and poultry manure. Just trying to figure out whether we can handle it with what we've got or whether whether Anthony's got something better we can handle it with. So, uh, but looking at that, basically that pelleted poultry litter for for a starter fertilizer on, on an organic system. I and mean, we're not going full organic. We'll have maybe twenty percent of our acreage be organic when we get done. We're not going to put much of any organic on, on the rented ground, I don't think, so that's going to limit it to mostly owned ground, so. But that's kind of where we're at and where we're headed, I guess. Well, that's what my son keeps talking about. He's got a friend of his, he went Cornell with his friend's a dairy farm, and they got some robotic milkers in there now, but they're they're set up organic, so they aren't all that far away from us, but Chad and, and he talked quite a bit, and uh, Chad said Chad would like to figure out how we could do some organic, no not, not do official, right. not go through the three-year period to get some ground certified organic, but just something we do on our own operation. You know, if it, if we make it work, fine. If you know, if we got to go into the chemical or something, but. Certainly, to look that way, and you know, with cover well, I, crops. Yeah, and I just said in the last session we were in, I think our work towards organic on some acres is going to affect the rest of our operation and finding some things that we can do different. Right. And we're probably going to start doing more drilling beans into cereal rye and rolling it in our regular operation, which is. I mean, we're kind of headed for cereal rise or organic weed control sort, but we want to we keep kind of the same system of strip tilling for corn and, and no tilling for beans. We're going to end up being drilling for beans, I think, instead of the bean planter we've got. I just feel like we've got a ground in with the cover crops we've used for the last eight years or so, kind of in the right shape. Well, thank you to each of the strip tillers for sharing their perspectives and pathways for getting into the practice. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank the National Strip Tillage Conference for supporting this Strip Till Farmer podcast. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. And you can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Strip-Till Strategies e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Striptill, F-A-R-M-R, and on our Striptill Farmer Facebook page. 
Well, I hope that you'll join us again on April 20th for the next episode in our 2017 podcast series, part two of Lessons Learned Developing a Successful Strip-Till System, where we'll hear more from our Strip-Till Roundtable conversation on nutrient management practices. For each of the farmers who joined us for the Roundtable discussion, the National Strip-Tillage Conference, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening.